Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And we're the hosts of the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, where we bring you stories that delve into the science and spirit behind intriguing people doing extraordinary things. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast. This week, it's episode 64. This week, we have vegan runner Robbie Ballinger on the call. Now, Robbie in 2019 ran 300, sorry, 3,175 miles across the United States in only 75 days in order to promote the benefits of plant-based diet. Robbie just finished what he calls the Colorado Crush. Get this, 63 days, 1,176 miles, over 308,981 feet of gain, including the entire Colorado Trail. I think that's 58 peaks that are all over 14,000 feet. And he finished by running the legendary Leadville 100. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, Robbie, it looks like you have one... You have a pretty good imagination, so we're going to have to jump in on that in a minute because we all sort of construct these ideas, which makes me think that maybe your start in this world was a kid with imagination too. Like, So take us back early. Like Some of us started as runners, some of us didn't. Were you a runner early in your life? Did you have this kind of imagination to go out and create interesting challenges? We'll touch at some point on the whole vegan piece of this because that's intriguing, I think, to people who have some preconceived notions about what we need to eat to be able to perform at the level that you do. But yeah, give us a little bit of the early start story, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, only, I've been running about eight years. I'm 36, about to be 37, 20, 28, 29 years old, I started running. Prior to that, my kind of athletics was team sports growing up. I, I played football. And then after that, I moved up to Alaska, kind of wanderlust, did a bunch of hiking up there. Ended up in Austin, Texas, and there I was I was into fixed gear cycling for a while. Nothing competitive, just like bumming around town, being a young guy, chasing the bar scene, really, and mm. kind of stuck with that for a long time. I, I, I left athletics and spent my time working hard and partying hard. And then there was a point where the work, the work was really important to me, what I was doing, and the partying wasn't really equating to me being as accountable as I wanted to be. So my girlfriend at the time was now a fiance. We had just started dating. She's a runner and she invited me out on a run and I made it two and a half miles, had to get a cab home, but it stuck. I was really into it after that. And then it was a pretty quick progression over the years. It was, I think a couple months later, I did a half marathon the following year, marathon 50 milers on all the way up until kind of my big, my big like entrance into the, the kind of ultra endurance world was when I ran across the United States in 75 days. Yeah, absolutely. But let's go back even a little bit further. I mean, like, so Robbie, when it comes to running across America in five days, uh, when it comes to even creating this Colorado crush, the 63 days all throughout the Colorado Trail, the average person doesn't do that. We end up having to, to all have this innate or even a starting point where you're like, hey, yeah, why not? There's got to be an element of bravery. Where did, where did that come from? Where did it come from? Influences when you were a child, your father, a teacher, a coach, somewhere along the way. What, 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 what kind of spurred that on? I think it was definitely started from a parental thing. It came from my mother. She, I can remember from just a very young age, she instilled in me this saying, you can do anything you set your mind to. And I guess I really believe that. And I've taken that to the extreme within this sport of ultra endurance. I think it was a combination of that. And then I grew up without a father. My father passed away when I was very young. And I think there's been this constant exploration for what it means for me interpersonally to be a man, not having that kind of that influence. I've, I've just searched for it in many ways, whether it be 
really healthy ways like running and pushing my body. And then in other times, really unhealthy ways when I was partying a lot. So I think those combination of those two things is kind of the primal spot where this all started from. Yeah, that's interesting. I always, I'm very fortunate. My mom's still alive and I don't know, she's in her late eighties. And I was like, what did you do to me that made me want to do this and sort of seek out this, both this discomfort as much as anything else. And I think it is this idea that you can do more than you think you can. You get that bug at some point triggered one way or another. And then I think it does become part of you, even if you go in and out of it, it's always there. And I think we found that in talking to our, uh, to our guests over the past year and a half. You know, one of the, I was a kid and I did a, what was it, like a March of Dimes walkathon. And it was supposed to be 20 miles of walking. And so I was probably 11 and this guy said he was going to run. So I decided to run. I ran like a pair of sneakers that I had blisters at the end. And I don't know, it probably took five hours. It felt fast for this 20 miles, but they, we were never afraid of that kind of stuff. Did you, mm-hmm. you know that first long run that you did, what was the feeling like for you? How did you sort of work through that? I think for me, like as I started running, it very quickly felt very innate to me, very primal Mm -hmm. and very authentic, right? I think authenticity is something I'm always searching for. And there's just something about that, right? We all know when you're out there, like for me, it feels as though my, everything in my body aligns. It's like my deep Mm -hmm. is like, this is where we're supposed to be. And this is what we're supposed to be doing. And yeah, so it always just felt really comfortable and good in that way. So I think that's where... I started chasing it. And then I remember, I think the first time I felt like I had ran a long ways was when I made the threshold of 10 miles. I lived in Austin, Texas at the time. Anyone familiar, there's Lake Trav or there's Ladybird Lake, Lake Loop Trail. It's 10 miles. And prior to being a runner, that just felt like this monumental like length. I was like 10 miles around this. And the first mm-hmm. time I did it, my girlfriend, now fiance Shelly was out of town and I called her and was just elated and just so proud of myself. And I think from then it's always been just, let's push it a little bit further. Let's push it a little bit further and always being obsessed with distance over speed. I've never really ran a fast marathon, but I've always just wanted to keep going, keep going. And then this summer really, while I was out on what I, the Colorado crush as I I coined it, I, I had this realization that I think what I've been obsessed with for a long time is this idea of sustainable motion through space and time. Like how, mm-hmm. how, what are the, what are the tricks and tips and things that I can gather that allow me to move further more often? And that it comes back to reading Born to Run, uh, being kind of obsessed with the Tatamara Indians and how they just so a matter of factly can take on such long runs, pretty much just on like on command. You ask them to do it, they can go do it. And I'm just fascinated by that and kind of searching for that myself. And so the truth on authenticity, I mean, that's, 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 that's what I heard. And that comes at the core and the truth of, of, of running. I mean, it's, it's hard and it's, it's a perpetual moving, moving forward. It's, and you're, you're absolutely right. There are some genetic uh, components where some people are fast and, and Lord love them. And then, and then, but then you, you see the rest of everybody and, and they grind and they push and they, they don't quit. And that's what's so great about the ultra running world. But the truth and authenticity, uh, d- does that kind of spill into as well to your, your life now moving forward as a, as a plant-based athlete? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, for me, is, if we're going to talk about being plant-based, a lot of that for me, what I like to talk about is better is better. Like I, I look at it from this holistic spot that we're all doing the best we can. And mm-hmm. I don't like to speak in abysms when it comes to diet. Like I'm completely plant-based, but I think everyone should 
lend to get closer to it. And I think like my ability to kind of have that honest conversation about it and not just be like, you need to be 110% vegan tomorrow comes from that place of authenticity, understanding that we're, we're all just humans doing the best we can. And I think we mm -hmm. should kind of celebrate that a lot and kind of let go of these absolutisms as much as possible. Yeah. I, I've been through my journey. I'm not a complete vegan, probably 90%. I've been a vegetarian for 15 years. The thing that I found on the journey, one, it does affect your performance for mm -hmm. sure. Secondly, though, it was really interesting and has still been interesting in terms of how we're treated in society and how you have to go through, look, we're three white males we live a relatively privileged life in terms of where we fall on that sort of spectrum of bias and prejudice. But you take on some belief system that's different than the norm. And all of a sudden you become like, oh, wow, Look at that. someone says, oh, what do vegetarians eat? Like, oh, I don't know. Like, that's an interesting, like with this judgment that there is only one way to live. And I think that you're right, Robbie, it's this sort of both an exploration, but also an acceptance of more than one model and, and what works for one and in the broader context. So the implications, right? The reason why to become a vegan or a vegetarian or make the choices you do are broad. And was it, did you start as a meat eater and then evolve into it? Did it take you time? How did it come about? Yeah, absolutely. So my uh, career prior to becoming a professional runner was I was a restaurateur. I owned some uh, part owner and oversaw operations for some Neapolitan pizzerias in Austin, Texas. So tons of mozzarella, salami, all that good stuff you can put on a pizza. I was into it. And then I, when I, when I left, I let those restaurants go. Like I, I, I sold my shares and got out of the, the management of them. And then that was the time when Shelly and I moved from Austin up to Denver and it was for her to go to nursing school. But this also provided an opportunity for me to re-evaluate like, what I wanted out of life, what I wanted to do. And I was really interested in something that would help with climate change. I was really interested in environmentalism. And I was also really interested in that time at refining my food choices. It was the first time in my adult life I wasn't working at a restaurant and I had mm. full control over what I was going to eat. Anyone that's um. worked at restaurants knows you at some point in the night, you just stuff your mouth with whatever <clears throat> the chef makes so you can have mm -hmm. enough energy to keep going. And I had, so I had this opportunity to, again, like reevaluate everything. And in there, I started exploring, wanted to go kind of plant-based. I, I started with eliminating the meat and it all came off of reading Scott Jurek's book, Run. And it wasn't overnight. It was a slow progression for me. It was uh, pretty easy to let go of the meat. It was the cheese part of it, really enjoyed cheese. And it took a while. And then it was honestly like, it was six months before I left for my run across the United States where I was going to do it to create conversations about better food choices and promote a plant-based diet. It was only yeah, six, eight months before that when I completely made the, the switch, you know? And so I think through that, through my kind of evolution of that and it being pretty fresh and new, I'm able to come at it from this spot of let's do the best we can, try not to set people up for failure by telling them they need to go 110% plant-based and then they succumb to eating some meat one day and then they think, oh, I failed. Well, nobody wants to fail. And then they just let the whole idea go. Whereas I think it's better to be like, let's just, let's all do the best we can. It's good for us and it's good for the environment. So I think that, yeah, back to the truth and authenticity piece and even extending a bit further to kindness. What the world doesn't need is, is somebody standing on a, on a pedestal saying, this is what you need to do, you, you dummy. 
And so absolutely, I, I, I think that that's, that's, that's probably the greatest approach. And especially when it comes to my next question, I guess, Robbie, is, is the run across America. Was that as well, too? It's to promote the, the benefits of, of a plant-based uh, lifestyle and a diet. Was that to also maybe kind of showcase that you can do hard things? Uh, believe me, you, I, I attempted to run across the country or across Canada in record time. And it's, it's hard. The nutrients that you need every single day to, to promote that, 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 that the miles that you're putting in are, are huge. Was that also to kind of to showcase that you can do hard things? You can do difficult things on a plant-based diet. And if not, you can even do it better. Yeah. I mean, that was it. It was to, again, create these conversations, but also show that it was possible. What I learned along the way is it wasn't just that it was possible for me. It was what allowed me to do it. And that right. really, that really came true for me interpersonally while I was out there that I realized that we set my nutrition plan to where after about a, the first three weeks, it, it got up sooner than that. I mean, I think it's the first week we got to 8,000 calories a day and eating mm. 8,000 calories a day is laborious. It's laborious. On it's your a system. hard work. <laughs> yeah. And keeping it plant-based is less laborious on your system. Therefore I had more energy for my legs. And mm. also when you're doing a prolonged effort, 75 days, you got to stay healthy. And so putting things in my body that were building it up instead of breaking it down, yeah. So to me, it became part of like this, these, these little things that make for, for our own personal superpowers. And, and mine comes a lot through my diet choices. I, I love this because what you really touch on, there are some cultural influences that we all live with. And sometimes when I was a kid, we used to call them old wives tales, things we were told that we believe so deeply, but they're not true. But we believe them for some reason because we were told them by a grandmother, who knows, a friend, uh, someone down the street. Like, remember the one which says, don't eat before you go swimming because you get a cramp and die. <laughs> well, I guess the triathlete entire sport would be done if that was really true. If you don't wear a hat, you're going to freeze to death in the winter time because. And, and I think that, that we have this belief system about meat because of the industrial food complex. Not to be bad about it, like it can exist side by side. But what it's done is it's tried to convince us that actually plants are not good. Like you go in a restaurant and you can see 40 menu items and there'll be one that's a plant-based menu item. You're like, the only conclusion is it means it's bad, right? It's like, because no one would ever eat that if there wasn't meat in it. And you start to learn as you explore that one, it opens food choices up in a way that you'd never even imagine. There's more food choices in the plant world than there are in the meat world, that they can taste amazing, that they can fuel you. And that all that I, because I grew up as a meat eater. I mean, that's all. I mean, like mm -hmm. you're talking about red, rare roast beef and hamburgers and salami. And I'm like, everything you said, Robbie, was me. And, uh, and so, but as you start to explore it, I like to think about the same with ultra running and our listeners could explore that or could explore what is it like to have less meat in one's life. And it only becomes more positive. It's not like giving up anything, right? It's gaining something. And I think that's the piece that we have to try and get people to believe, which is that we're not taking anything away. Running actually gives you more energy. It doesn't take energy away. Eating properly does it. Having the right community of friends does that. And it's sort of all together when you sort of start to think about how do you live a a life of vitality throughout. It's going to be these choices, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, it comes down to good food and good rest and in good community. <clears throat> if you have those three components, <clears throat> I mean, your chances of living a happy, fulfilled life are much higher. And I know the three of us, you kind of mentioned this earlier, and most people listen to this are probably in a privileged position so that they can pursue those things. And, and I think they're very valid. And 
to that part you said, it doesn't really take away from anything. It actually gives me more. Like if I can be completely healthy, I feel lighter. Um, I don't get as sore. I think that's a huge part about being plant-based is meat causes inflammation. Inflammation causes soreness. I don't really have that. So therefore I'm able to jump back and do things day after day. But yeah, so like those components there and then finding the tools for recovery, you're, it's just like, it's good for me in every part of my life, not just this sport. It's not like I'm going to do this so that I can perform, but man, it's going to negatively affect how I am at home or how I am mm-hmm. at, at, at a career, if whatever, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, Robbie, let's let's talk a little bit more about, because I was trying to trying to allude to a certain question before, but I don't think I really got there. And that's on me not, not asking <laughs> the question properly, but you, you ran across America. You know, we didn't even touch on the Central uh, Park Loop Challenge and, and you know, that's Colorado Crush, the 308,000 feet of elevation over three days. I, I, I look at the average person, even, even, not even the average person, but even some of the strongest runners I know, and they're still delegated and, and, and uh, managed by fear. You know, that they don't typically lean into things that really scare them. Um, doesn't seem like you haven't been running for decades. You've been running just a short little short while. You tell us the story about how you ran two and a half miles and you had to get a, a cab home, uh, but it didn't didn't scare you enough to, to get back out there again. Um, you don't have a long standing career at this, but yet you keep leaning into things that would normally cripple the average hundred mile runner with fear. What's with that? You know, what, 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 how, how is it that you're able to, to lean into these really, really hard challenges? Now, I bet you in the back of your mind right now, you're probably thinking of two or three other ones. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from a quick understanding through the sport of how much better of a person it made me every step of the way. Mm-hmm. And from, from that first time doing 10 miles and then breaking through into longer distances, like understanding how much growth comes through it. Like right. people say running's meditation. Okay, it is meditation, but it's a lot more than that. I think that kind of like, whittles it down a little too far and so in that like there's just this curiosity with the exploration i think Mm -hmm. with the transcon when i ran across the u.s looking back i think there was a little bit of naivety i think because i had only done it Mm -hmm. been doing it at that point for six years i wasn't really i wasn't really aware of what i was about to get myself into and yeah yeah, and but also having the resolve and knowing i'm not going to quit unless my body breaks and so through that it was a suffer fest. Those 75 days put me to my limit. I had definitely flexed a little bit harder than probably where my, my physical ability was at that time, but I got it done. And through that, like now everything seems like I can accomplish it. Right. Like that to me, kind of, it was a big thing to start with. I think a lot of people would build up to that over many, many years of ultras. And I was just like, yeah, let's just go ahead and do that part. So yeah, now everything feels attainable for me. That was a big moment for me when I finished to completely embrace this idea that my mom had instilled in me. I was like, yep, I can do anything I set my mind to. And then that's when the challenges started to get a little more creative. I think the Colorado Crush being definitely the most creative of anything I've done, but it's only the beginning, right? Like now it's just like, oh, my mind's just spinning with all these ideas. And it's really fun when you don't feel limitations and you don't, Mm -hmm. like, I don't really give failure like it's not I was asked that recently in a conversation somebody was like how do you deal with like the fear of failure and I was like I just don't really factor that in it's not part of the mm-hmm. equation and if I don't really if I don't entertain it I, I it, it it just makes it that much easier just to push to whatever try whatever you want to do essentially 
Yeah, and Robbie, that, that's, yeah, sorry, sorry, Joe. That, that reminded me of this woman that was, she's probably going to be listening to this as well, too. But I, I, I ran a, a race yesterday and, and there was a, a woman on the course and Lord love her. She signs up for these things and time and time and time again, she just does not complete them. When, and she trains hard, does all the right things, but yet I don't know how many races that she signed up for and, and has not completed, but she couldn't be happier being out there trying her very best. And I think about the average person that, that really it cripples them, the idea of failure so that they never try. And then you're missing out on all of that. Would, would you, would you kind of equate that to yourself maybe a little bit, but it's, it's, it, you don't, you don't give it any oxygen. So therefore, well, what's, 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 what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah, exactly. You know, and not giving it a lot of thought, but also then not being afraid of it. Yeah. talk like of her, like she hasn't completed these races. Some may call that a failure, but all I hear is that she keeps signing up and that's yeah. like, wow, like what a, what an animal, what a, what a badass to do that. Yeah, in a way, even more so. Yeah, there's two things you touched on, Robbie, that I, we have to explore a little bit. I wanted to try something on you. So there's a guy named Gordon McKinsey. He wrote a book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. He had worked at Hallmark and was one of the guys who worked at Shoebox Greetings when Hallmark was a very traditional company. He worked on this creative initiative to bring humor and fun to greeting cards. And in his research that he did, he went out and met kids kindergarten through sixth grade. And he would ask them this question, every one of them, are you an artist? And in kindergarten, every kid raised their hand. And by the time he got to sixth grade, there was one kid in the back who barely raised his hand. And his question back to the reader was, why do we crush creativity out of people, out of children, but really people, so that by the time we become an adult, we're not creative. We have quieted that innate and natural curiosity and creativity. And so we go through this life and the option or opportunity, which you've found is to reignite that because it's innate, it's in us. And you're like, oh, wow, I'm like a kid again. I can go explore. I can find things. I can just be sort of back to that boyish enthusiasm. Like, I have no idea if I'm a good artist or not, but I am one, right? So let me keep drawing. And instead, the other option is just sit on the couch because you're afraid of drawing. In this case, you're afraid of going out and trying to running. Do you think that there's this sort of rebirth that can happen that you now found, which is now your oxygen in a way? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's through kind of trial and error, right? Like I said, I was part owner in these restaurants. I was a restaurateur. Anyone that's been in that industry knows how hard work it is. And the higher up the totem pole you make it, it's usually that much harder, especially if you were bad as I was at delegating. So I was just working around the clock. I was, it was all the things that we worked for were there. There was financial success. There was a lot of notoriety that came with it. It was a really popular restaurant in Austin, but I wasn't very happy. And so I chased that whole thing. And so there was my trial and error. It was like, I just did that. I did it for a really long time and I'm bummed. It wasn't a lot of fun. I wasn't really happy while I was doing it. Well, let's just try something else. And with this time, I'm just going to be freer and I'm going to make choices purely based off of where my happiness takes me and where like what fills my, fills my cup. And it was running and just, yeah, really kind of just continuing to try to figure out a way to make it work for me because that other thing didn't work. And I didn't really see that if I just changed to a new industry and continued to do that, it was going to fulfill me anymore. So I think that's where a lot of that came from. Yeah. And I love where Joe was going with that because I, I, I see that there's a mundane in adult life. 
and yeah, we've 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 been we've we've had the artists ripped out from underneath us, and you see that people just get up and do the same thing that they were doing, and. For whatever reason, Robbie, you've found happiness and, and joy and fulfillment in, in in doing new hard things, and and therefore you're 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 kind of you've got a new canvas in front of you, and you're you're painting away. Where where, where do you kind of see this this going? Do you, do you see yourself kind of sticking to the to the running world? Do you cycling? Is it more kind of public speaking when it comes to 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 plant based diet stuff is this is is you know, where 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 kind of do you see this transition to? Right now, it's just to continue to push, just to continue to do yeah. big efforts. I'm really, again, I'm fascinated with this idea of sustainable through space and time. It's like kind of this mm-hmm. new like thesis for me, and understanding that there's still a lot of work to be done for me on un- better understanding that. Whereas, like looking when I ran across the United States, it was all about nutrition. It was like, okay, I really think this diet's going to work for me. That's going to be the key to me being able to just push every day every day and it worked but in there i didn't factor in recovery and factoring in recovery i didn't sleep a lot during it and it was a supper fest in a way it didn't really have to be so this summer's efforts doing the colorado crop the focal point of that was recovery so i've got the plant-based thing down now let's explore tools for recovery to assure that i can get up and do this even better than i did that and by devising this this project what the difference between it and the transcon was the mental acuity had to be there. When you're climbing mm. eight peaks over 14,000 feet in Colorado, you can't be in the mental space I was in when I was doing the transcontinental run. Like I, I could just lower my head, follow the white line, no problems. You're up on the side of a mountain, you need to be all there. So the recovery part had to happen. And so that's really what I, what I was exploring here. And I did that. My sponsor was a, was a recovery company called Newcom. It's a neuroscience technology that essentially through a three-part system, you lie down with it and it sends your brain into alpha and theta waves. And so that's where Mm. like parasympathetic nervous system takes over. That's where recovery happens. And so it was all exploration of that. And I think I got that honed in and I'm sure there's, but there's always going to be a next thing. Mm. So right now it's all about continuing to push. I know there's, again, I'm 36. I think I've got a solid 10, 14 more years where I'm willing to just really throw it down on these multi-day efforts. And I'm just excited to see where it takes me, but definitely going to stay with it. I'm definitely up to doing more public speaking and all those other things around it. But at the core, I still want to be an athlete. Yeah. I think uh, you might have a few more years than that if I was <laughs> guess, right, Dave? The, the theme that I would love to touch on for a little bit, which is I think hopefully inspiration to our listeners. Dave, had this when he was going to run across Canada and try to break the record. People are like, well, what happens if, and what if it's the bad weather? And what if you hurt yourself? And what if like, and then when I planned the six marathons, six continents, six days, everyone said to me, well, what if this happens? What? If? And I just kept coming back to the, let me just go find out. Like, I, I don't need to decide before that I can't get mm-hmm. it done. Like, like that's, that's sure. Like we could come up with a thousand reasons that things can go bad, but like, why don't we just explore them and feel them? Rather than say, I can't, right? I always said that can't shouldn't be in the dictionary. Like, what is its purpose? Like, it has no literal or figurative purpose because you maybe won't or you wouldn't, but like can't is this sort of like, then you're not allowed. So when you set out on these adventures, I imagine you had that sort of people pulling and tugging at you, which is like, oh, Robbie, what will happen? And I think it's partially for our listeners to know that we all work through that. And at the same time, it's like a little bit like jumping off the diving board. There's just a point where you just have to do that. Like, it doesn't matter. Did you did you feel that 
is it getting less or people just sort of saying, oh, it's just Robbie now? I'm like, or they still do that to you? I think it's getting less, definitely in my circle. Now they just go, oh God, here we go again. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I would say, but even, but when those things come up, it's like, my, my thought on that is barriers, blocks, stops, they're going to happen no matter if I'm running across the United States or sitting on my couch. Life is going to put obstacles in our way, regardless of what you're doing. If you find a way to move through life without any obstacles, like, I don't know if I want you to point me in that direction or that just sounds miserably boring, but there's always, I, I guess there's just always going to be those things. So you might as well do whatever the hell it is you wanted to in the first place. And when things, when things do arise, you deal with them and breaking, breaking up monumental goals into smaller steps, I think is a great way to do that. Like I ran across the United States in five mile segments. I, I took on nutrition every five miles. I met my crew. So it was always many days. It was just about getting to the next spot, getting to the next spot. And along the way, there's obstacles, but you just overcome mm -hmm. them, and keep going. Yeah. And I had this very similar experience, Robbie, when I ran across Canada, it was the RV would drive up ahead and I would run on my own. And really all you were doing was you, 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 you ran a small little segment to, to the next little, to the next RV. And, and, and that was all you were responsible for it. And there were, there were probably a hundred things every day that could have gone wrong. And, and we figured it out when we got there, yeah. but that's life as well too. And, and I, but I, I think that there's, you get fixated in, in all those, okay, well, what if, and, and it almost makes you not even want to start trying. Right. So maybe that's the message here, Robbie, is yeah, the more active you are, the riskier you are, there's going to be a thousand, two thousand things that, that if, could possibly come up. But it's, it's the, maybe the messaging is, is yeah, so what? But there, there will always be those things and, and you'll most likely figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we are as humans is problem solvers. So let's just put it to mm -hmm. the test. Let's do what we want to do. And as they come, just overcome them, check them off the box, mm -hmm. take care of it. And then the next time too, that's the thing. Like we learn a lot through these things. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's just very simple. You run across the United States, like, but it's really not. And there was so much to learn from that. And all those obstacles were places to learn that I now take to me and to, to other efforts. And it just makes me more efficient and able to push the envelope a little bit further. The, the other thing, uh, Robbie, that I was impressed with prior to meeting, so how good was running across the U.S. this year, first African-American to do the transcon, and I don't know, the guy is like probably the happiest person who ever lived. <laughs> I was watching and following him on Instagram, and he had some pretty tough moments as well, which were sort of terrible and unfair, but then you showed up and surprised him and stayed with him and ran with him, and he was just like over the top with joy. So I love that you went out there and did that and helped him. And we'll probably need to get him on the podcast so we can hear his story as well. But yeah, what was, tell me a little bit more about that. How did it come about that you went out there and helped him and, you know, what was going on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Hella is an amazing human. We're very, very good friends and everything you see following him on social media is true. He's just authentically the nicest guy in the world. But how it all came to be is on my last day of my transcontinental run, I'm in Jersey, we're heading into Manhattan, and we put an all call out. Anybody that wanted to come run with me as I came in, and Hella showed up. He actually lived like less than five minutes away from where I started my last day. And Hella had already been on, I think, a year and a half, maybe two year running streak. And that yeah. was kind of where he was placing most of his energy and he got there and that just big smile, anybody that's ever seen mm -hmm. him just has this great smile. He comes up and he goes, I'm going to do this one day. 
And I just, just so quickly was like, yes, you are, you will do it. And then it became, we just started communicating and just prior to COVID, he was planning on doing it. That kind of knocked mm-hmm. the wind out of his sails there. And then about two months before he started, so like January of this year, I got a phone call and hell's like, I'm about to go for it. And so from then, right then, it got real serious about me mentoring him, giving him all, all the knowledge I had. And I had planned to come out and help him along the way. And it just wasn't sure quite when that was going to happen. And then following on social media and then also talking with him almost daily, it got to a point where I realized, okay, he really needs the help. He needs it right now. He was, he was kind of falling apart. There was a lot of issues with kind of the flow of how he was doing things. So yeah, I went out and it was all those tricks and trades, tricks of the trade that I learned during mine. I was able to apply those to him just really quickly without him having to trial and error it. And we got him on the right path. And did he pick up the pace? I mean, if you look at the final, the the second half of his transcon compared to the first, it is really impressive. He really pushed it hard and learned a lot. And it's just, yeah, he's awesome. I had so much fun supporting him. I was there. I I met up with him initially in the Navajo nation. So like Northeastern Arizona. And that was my favorite part of the run. It's a very beautiful area. The people there are really amazing. And so getting to relive my steps mm. through Ella's run was really rewarding for me. And then Shelly and I came back out and saw him in Oklahoma. And then I flew out to his finish as well. So we kind of retraced our steps together where we met because we started from essentially the same place. But yeah, I, I just really enjoyed supporting him. I, I, have a couple friends that like to do real big things and I like to support them in any way I can for sure. Yeah. So, so Robbie, that's you, you mentoring individuals and friends and whatnot, but at the beginning of all of this for the, the transcon and things, who was mentoring you? Uh, did you have anybody close to you within your friend circle? You know, sometimes it's reading books like Scott, Scott Jerk's book or, 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 or others, or, or seeing what runners are doing, like the Coastal Knicks of the world, transcon speed records and, and, and following them on, on social media. Who, who was, who was, who was, who was motivating you? So initially it was Shelly, my, my fiance. Yeah. She came from a family of runners. Her father had ran a bunch of marathons. She had done one and she was the one that just showed me the simple stuff like, oh, hey, dude, if you want to run more than two and a half miles, you're probably going to want to slow down a little bit. And I was like, oh, this is pacing myself. Okay. Yeah. So there was a, there was a point where that was really where I was getting all of my information. And then so that's one of the beautiful things of social media. You start to connect and find these people doing really cool stuff. And for me, it was really the whole community. There wasn't really one person in particular that really stood out. I had this chance encounter where we went from Austin and we came up to uh, Silverton, Colorado for a, a long weekend trip. And it just happened to be the weekend before Hard Rock. Oh, and wow. I just was, we were in Silverton and they were all there. And I'd been following them on social media. And there was something about that, like seeing these people in the flesh and realizing that I was just like them put on my put on my pants every day and laced up my shoes did my thing and so did they and and just seeing that allowed me to start exploring it even more seriously because we're but yeah it was really the whole community I didn't have I think once by the time I got to ultra distance I didn't really have anybody in my community that was doing that and I think that was one of the interesting things moving from Austin to Denver is in Austin I'd tell people I'm like yeah I run and they're like oh marathons I'm like yeah yeah I do 50 milers too and then I moved to Colorado and I'm people are like what do you do I'm like oh, I run they're like what well, 50 miles like well one out of 100 and you're like okay all right mm-hmm. it really stepped yeah. up the game to move to Colorado because there's just so many like really impressive and talented runners yeah mm-hmm. this story always is you move to Boulder to find out how slow you are yeah you know so let's talk just for a minute about Leadville 
at the end of the Colorado crush. So now most times people go to Leadville. This is extraordinarily difficult because you're starting at 10,000 feet and you stay there for 100 miles, which really does, no pun intended, crushes people. It's like got a 50% finish rate um, over years. People don't really understand what that altitude does to you. Interestingly enough, about more than half of the people finish in the last hour. I mean, it's really like a declining curve. But you had been spending a lot of time above 10,000 feet doing the trail and the 14ers. But by the time you got to Leadville, I'm sure you're a bit tired right now. You got to... You can pace yourself, whatever pace you sort of want up the 14er, put your headlamp on and go later into the day. But here you have those cutoff times. You got to get up over Hope Pass, back over Hope Pass. How did the race play out for you? Because I'm sure those legs were sort of just like enough is enough, Robbie. Yeah, it it was. It was an interesting thing. Throughout the summer, that was one of the big questions. It's like, where am I going to be when I tow the line at 100? Like, am I going to be thrashed and know from moment one that this is just going to be a suffer fest? Am I going to be in the best shape of my life and everything goes great? We just didn't really know up until that moment. And it, it started off really well. I mean, I came out like a bat out of hell. I was just flying and I felt so good. I mean, I was like, this is my breakout race. I'm going, I'm going top 20, maybe top 10, who knows? And then we get to May Queen, the first aid station. And right around there, if you've done this enough, that moment when your legs are thrashed, and that mm-hmm. usually happens much later in the, in the day for me, but it was right then. It was like 13 miles. I was like, oh no, as much as I thought I had, <laughs> like I'm acclimated. I, I'm probably in the best shape of my life, but I'm tired and my legs are tired. Mm-hmm. And so it quickly became a suffer fest. I mean, it was mm-hmm. from that moment on, the rest of, of the effort was, was one of those where we always have our highs and lows, but my highs were kind of melancholy and my lows were just dark, very, very dark. Mm-hmm. And it was, then it's going through all those like character building moments that happen in a race where you ask yourself, who am I to think I should be out here doing this? Like, this is crazy. And then you get over it and you feel a little bit better and you build a little bit of confidence. And it's like, that just goes on all day, all night. And then mm-hmm. there's the thing about Leadville too, is there's two belt buckles. There's a 25 sub 25 hour belt buckle and then a sub 30 hour. And I really was at that threshold. And I thought for a lot of the race, I was going to get it in below 25. And then having to come to terms with it took me 27 and a half. That's character building right there. That's that moment where you realize mm-hmm. the disappointment, there is a slight failure. But what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do? And the reality was, is you let it go and you just start celebrating your successes. And the successes were everything else I had done that summer. And I was still going to complete the Leadville 100. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, we were out there. I mean, I've been there many times. I think between the ride and the run, I've spent 10 times out at the course. It's combined some parts of it. But Dave, what you probably don't know is that Hella shows up to pace Robbie with that smile and he's going to take him. So this year, because of COVID and some travel restrictions, the pacers weren't allowed till mile 62. Typically they're at mm. mile 50. And so that really is helpful. You, you go up over this mountain pass at 12,600 feet and you go down and you got to come back up over it. And you didn't get the pacer till that second time over. Now you're just, unless you're the top three, you're taught, it's tired. Like it doesn't matter. It's only 38 miles to go. You're like, it could be a hundred at that point. So what was it like to get that smile and his enthusiasm, <laughs> which is like, all right, hell, I'm not feeling that good. So yeah, it was really great. He's like, I think for me, one of the biggest things I look for in a pacer is somebody to take my mind off of what I'm doing. Yeah. And Hella is just mm-hmm. like energy talking, ready to go. 
And uh, that was really cool. And also like to understand hell a little bit is like, he's new to this ultra running thing. Mm. And this was like really like, I think impressive for him to see, like he was just overcome with just how cool it was. He'd not spent a lot of time on trail or up there. And I knew like I was going slow enough that he would maintain. So it was kind of like taking a guy out for his first trail run. It was nice. a lot of fun. Mm. And we had a really good time. And then for the last 13 miles, Shelly paced me. And that was really great too. Like she's a, she's a really strong runner, but also knows me really well. And it was good to celebrate the finish of this big summer with her as well, because it takes, it takes a lot of sacrifice from your partner when you say you're going to leave for 63 mm -hmm. days to go play in the mountains. So yeah. getting to have that time with her was excellent as well. Dave, yeah. just one quick thing. Anton ran Krupitsha. He had run, he had won the the 2006 and that maybe seven in that time frame. he came back out first true competitive hundred miler. I just listened to a podcast he was on, he came in third, but he was talking this last 13 miles, which should really be like for guys like you, Dave, it's not a hard part of the race. It's just a little bit of rolling. It's a bit of an uphill on the last four miles, but it was like the same thing. Like you get to this May Queen aid station, you're just like done. You're like, yeah. I, I don't even know what to do. I got to, 13 miles, if I'm a good runner, that's what, two hours, 2.15, and it could take you three and a half. Like you're, yeah. so I, I know the feeling, Robbie, and even Anton, who came in third, was sort of like struggling, so. Good, that makes me feel a little better. Yeah. So th those last 13, 13 miles with, with your fiance, was that more of like a, would you say a celebration? Or did you find that, that she had to kind of kind of bring out the whip a little bit and kind <laughs> urge of you, urge you on? It was a death march. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was, I, I finished in 27 and a half hours and I was tired, but it was, there was some mm -hmm. cumulative fatigue that really manifested itself in being mm -hmm. sleepy. I've, I don't get sleepy often in efforts. And there was one moment where we had to stop. She needed to adjust something. And apparently I just leaned over on my poles and fell asleep. Mm -hmm. I've never come mm -hmm. close to that. So just really like dealing with the sleep deprivation and also, again, my legs were just so thrashed. So she was definitely mm -hmm. having to crack the whip quite a bit. I mean, I never lose resolve. There was never a moment where I was like, I don't want to continue. But there was a lot of like, come on, let's keep going, pick it up. But you can mm -hmm. do a little faster than that. Yeah. So it was that and definitely celebration right at the end, as we all do. As soon as you see the finish line, it's like, oh, that wasn't bad. This is great. I got it. <laughs> that's love. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. And so this is what now? Let's see. Is it, a, it's almost like three, four weeks since, three weeks since uh, you finished? Yeah. What was it? The 22nd, I think was when we finished. So it's yeah. a couple of weeks. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. I haven't ran much, really not much at all. I've been spending a lot of time just low impact. I enjoy riding around Denver quite a bit. So that's been fun. We did, Shelly and I took off and redid 114er. We did a 13er and then did Wheeler Peak, which is the highest peak in New Mexico. We did that last week, and it felt really good to get back up there. I really love the high alpine stuff this, after the summer. really resonated with me. And what was interesting is I found the first day we did Mount Ure. It's a 13er. My legs felt awful. I was like, oh, this weekend's going to be hard. I don't even know if I want to do this. The next day, everything felt great. And I really think that goes mm -hmm. to like the adaptation, the quickness to adaptation that my body's kind mm -hmm. of starting to understand. It was the first day I didn't want to do it. And the second day is like, well, this is what we're going to do. Everything felt mm -hmm. good. Yeah. So getting back into it, I'm waiting on a new pair of road shoes to show up. And as soon as they do, I'm going to get some miles in. Uh, actually, I'm running tomorrow morning with Shelly. She's doing a, she's training for a marathon. So we're going to do a 24 mile run. Oh, great. Which, what marathon is she training for? 
Well, she's kind of up in the area. It was going to be one up in Wisconsin. Her grandmother lives up there, but her grandmother's quite old. And with Delta variant right now, we might mm. scale that back and she might be doing the Colfax Marathon. So right. it's going to be, but she's been injured for two years. So this is kind of her coming back into it. She's got her, her uh, sight set on her first 50 miler in January. So really excited to support her through the training of those as well. Hey, Robbie, Absolutely. have you considered Dave has got his uh, quarantine backyard shirt on? He's planning to do bigs. Have you been thinking at all about the backyard style, the 4.1 miles every hour on the hour? Is that in your horizon? I, I actually did one. I did one oh. this year. I was, it was down in Texas. Tejas Trails put it on. I did it. It was three weeks after setting the FKT for Central Park Loop. I did the mm. Central Park Loop Challenge. It was how many loops can you get in in the hours that the, the park is open, which is from 6 a.m. until 1 a.m. And I ended up doing like 98.7 miles in 18 hours and seven minutes. I had already signed up before I knew I was going to do that effort. I had signed up for a big. So I did that three weeks after. I made it like 92 miles and then just kind of got real tired and didn't make the cutoff on one. I mm -hmm. think it is a fascinating format and I am just blown away by the bigs. And like, if you're headed there, you must've done really well in one. And I just find it so cool and impressive. It is a, it is a mind game. I mean, it's yeah. really an interesting thing to me. I got real dependent on the stops. I got really, to, like, I just assumed I had to take 10 minutes every four miles. And I think that's kind of one of the, the mind games it plays with you because there's no other time in running yeah. I need to take a 10 minute break every four miles but I sure I sure got to where I thought that out there yeah it's it's all it's all a bunch of everything isn't it yeah and yeah I'm going down to bigs in October here and in 2019 I got third at bigs with 50 something hours 52 hours I think and so um, yeah it's it's a fascinating race uh Laz has He's a diabolical hillbilly from Tennessee, and he puts us all through living hell of, of finding you know, human potential. And yeah. he, he, he does that to us, where he ends up creating these, these vast expanses of, of what the humans are able, able to do. And I, I think, Robbie, I think you do extraordinarily uh, good in, in, that, in that event, where it's just it's about grinding and not quitting. And, and with your resume here, we, you're not a quitter. Yeah, well, I'm going to keep, I'm going to do another one for sure. I'm probably going to be yeah. calling you for some tips, though. It's crazy. Like but I, I, I made a mistake at 48 hours in and, and those mistakes, they come up and bite you pretty quick. And, and that's what Lau says. You, you can only have good hours. You can't have a bad hour. Yeah. And I, I, I feel it will go over hundred hours this, this year down in bigs. And it's going to be, it's going to be something else. And if I would love to be dancing with everybody, and if I'm not, then I'm going to pull out a lawn chair and watch everybody dance. It's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I'm excited to follow. Yeah, it's yeah. A, this year is going to be quite the, the competitive landscape. And we got a lot, every one of the great runners who can get there with travel restrictions are going to be there. So we will yeah. see something, but it is this interesting format because you're sort of dependent on someone else. I mean, yeah. you could be in your best shape and finish at 41 because mm -hmm. no one did more than 40. So yeah, it's a, it is fascinating and uh, yeah you got many years in and it does really reward sort of a very good we've talked to probably five or ten of big competitors and all different strategies how much sleep time how fast you run you're eating sort of all of that so it will be uh, it'll be a good one for all of us to see yeah which sort of maybe we can spend a few minutes on you've been creative throughout thinking about everything from central park to this colorado crush and running across the u.s what are some of the other 
big ideas you have, whether you have them on the roadmap or just thinking about them? I'd be interested in doing a, a multi-week, multi-month effort that includes a bicycle as well. Like I'd, I'd like to do mm-hmm. the transition between the two. I, I always threaten that I'm about to really get into cycling and it never actually happens. I end up back on my feet. But so something in that, I don't really know exactly what yet. It's, it's, it's so fresh from what I just did. I'm kind of still like processing that. Mm-hmm. I want to do more for sure. There's a couple of challenges in the UK that are interesting to me. There's the three peaks challenge, which is the three highest peaks, one in Wales, one in England, and then Scotland and kind of traversing that, getting to each of those by foot and setting, there's an FKT for it. That's kind of interesting to me. I'm not really sure. And then also like, as I do start to formulate them, I usually keep them pretty tight until pretty close to it because because in their creative, there's like some level of intellectual property with it. And I don't, mm-hmm. I just kind of do that, but yeah, I'm not quite sure yet. Uh, I think I've got a little bit of time to kind of continue to, to process what I did and, and I'll come up with it during that for sure. We like that. We like that. I think that what happened this past year was lots of F came about because racing wasn't what it was. And, but even then some of the fire issues out in California closed down a lot of the PCT. There's a lot of challenge to it, but yeah, we've had people who have ridden their bike from Canada down to uh, Mexico, which is a pretty cool challenge. We just had a recent guest on who did that. And there's there's no shortage of what we can. I mean, look, Pete Costello created this idea of going from Bay to Bay, from Alaska down to Florida. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. A stroller over 98 days, which we, I think Dave and I are still, even though Dave's amazing at this, we still shake our head about that one. It's just like. Yeah, it doesn't make logical sense. Every yeah. time it enters my mind, I just shake my head. I'd still, like, I don't understand. Man's wicked. There's no question about it. And, and then you have these 24 hour and 48 hour opportunities, right? We had, we had talked to Olivier, who's got the US 48 hour record and the 24 hour record for a while. You got Jake Jackson, who's been pushing the envelope on the 24 hour. And then you had, Bob Hearn, who did the Vol State, un, mm-hmm. I guess screwed, not crude, and he just broke the record. So there is a lot of fun going on in the sport for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason I said before, you know, Bob Hearn's 54, so and he's still crushing it out there. So I think, Rob, you got plenty of years ahead of you. Excellent. That's mm-hmm. what I'd like to hear. Yeah. So we appreciate you getting on. You know, just for the listeners, I have to just call this out, Dave. Just finished a hundred miler. I think he might have slept a few hours. He won and broke course record. So we're proud of the accomplishments. And yeah, thanks. I, I guess, thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, he's a little too humble for my take sometimes. But <laughs> man, is he's a phenom, and we're happy for him because we, we really actually want him to win bigs. We want to like see if he can go out there and, and crush that. And Robbie, as you do some of these, or if you're ready to announce or afterwards, we'd love to have you back on the show. And your enthusiasm and positivity are amazing and you're a great representative for the sport and just humanity mm-hmm. in general. So thanks for being on. Well, thank you for having Absolutely. me. It's been a blast. Yeah. Thanks, we'll see you soon. Hey, Dave. Dave, Robbie is really a stud. I mean, of course, I love the plant-based thing, but then plant-based transcon, maybe we'll call him tough guy. I don't know. It seems like the longer and harder, the better for Robbie. And you guys just love his imagination. I mean, coming up with this idea of the Colorado crush just sounds like fun. I mean, although quite hard. But then he ends with the Leadville 100. I think this sort of puts him in a class of his own. And I do look forward to hearing what will be up for him in the coming years. I mean, it seems like creativity and endurance seem to suit Robbie quite well. it be fun to watch him. Okay, well, there you have it, folks. That's a wrap for this week. As always, a big shout-out to our sponsor, Performance Tea. 
You can find them on www.performancetea.com and they've given us a discount code for any of our listeners to get 20% off their purchase. Just use Chasing20 at checkout. And we'd greatly appreciate it if you could follow us on Instagram and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be awesome. As always, a huge thanks to our listeners for coming with us on this journey and chasing tomorrow with us. Thanks very much.